0: Our panelists this evening will offer us a behind the scenes glimpse into the editorial side of publishing. I will introduce Meghna Chakrabarti, our lovely moderator, and then she in turn will introduce our lovely panelists. Our moderator this evening, Megna Chakrabarti, is the host of Radio Boston, WBUR's acclaimed weekday show with a focus on news in-depth interviews with extraordinary people, and analysis on broader issues that have an impact on Boston and beyond. She is also the host of Modern Love, the podcast, a collaborative digital production between WBUR and the New York Times. She has won awards for individual reporting from the Associated Press and the Radio Television News Directors Association for her writing, hard news reporting, and use of sound. She holds bachelor's degrees in civil and environmental engineering from Oregon State University, a master's degree in environmental science and risk management from Harvard University, and an MBA with honors from Boston University. And now I'll let Megna take it over.
1: Thank you, everyone. I, I know that my educational progression makes absolutely no sense.
0: <laughs> but
1: uh, I suppose that my motto is there's, there's no degree that's ever wasted, ultimately. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. In my uh, uh, job, I have the uh, really distinct honor of talking to a lot of authors. So I get to talk with, with writers about their process and their work. Uh, and the outcomes of their work, but very rarely, actually, um, do I have a chance to sort of take a step deeper into uh, the world of writing and editing and publishing. So I'm really delighted to be able to speak with all our guests tonight to get a truly behind-the-scenes look about uh, into what it's like to be to be an editor in the editorial process in, in 2017. So with that, I just would like to take a moment to introduce our truly distinguished panelists, um, Helen a- Atwan. She's been director of Beacon Press since October 1995. She holds a master's degree in English literature from the University of Virginia. And she began her career in publishing at Random House uh, in 1976. Has since then worked at Knopf, Viking, uh, Ferrer Strauss and Drew, Simon and Schuster. Major acquisitions at Beacon include Gail Jones's *The Healing*, Daniel uh, Orphee's *Singular Intimacies*, Rashid Khalidi, Cornell West, Anita Hill. We could go on. Um, But I also, I actually want to mention 10 volumes of poetry by Mary Oliver uh, as well. And um, Helen served for eight years on the board of Penn New England and is the administrator of the Hemingway Foundation Penn Award. So please welcome Helen. (laughs) Ledette Randolph is editor-in-chief of Plowshares and the author of four books, most recently a book of nonfiction called Leaving the Pink House, and her prior works of fiction include the award-winning novels Haven's Wake and A Sandhill's Ballad. She's also on the faculty of the Writing, Literature and Publishing Department at Emerson in Boston and prior to joining the staff at Plowshares she was an acquiring editor and associate director at the University of Nebraska Press. She's the recipient of a Pushcart Prize, a Rona Jaffe Grant, a Virginia Faulkner Award a Best New American Voices Citation, and four Nebraska Book Awards. So please welcome Lydette Randolph. (laughs) And Michael Reynolds. He's been with Europa Editions, where he is currently Editor-in-Chief, and he's been with them since 2004. Authors he's worked with at Europa include Alina Bronski, Elena Ferrante, Charlotte Wood, and Alexander Maxis, Max. Yes,
2: that's the only American author on that list. And I screwed it up. And the other ones you did perfectly, <laughs> yeah. Maxic. Yeah. Maxic, Alexander there Maxis. we go.
1: Uh, he's also the author, he's an author and a translator as well, and the recipient of the 2016 Golden Colophon Award for Superlative Achievement and Leadership in Independent Literary Publishing, born in Australia and now lives in New York. So please welcome Michael Reynolds. Usually I have someone in my ear saying you said that wrong, so <laughs> so I appreciate you correcting me. Um, so there's much to discuss actually, but I just thought I'd start with a sort of very big picture question about, you know, in 2017, what would you say the mission, the core mission is of your of your publishing publishing house or journal, and I mean. Take it in any in any order you want, but I'll just start with you uh-huh. since you happen to be sitting closest okay. to me. <laughs> um, well, we've gotten
3: more focused at Beacon Press. Beacon was founded in 1854. Um, by the Unitarians and um, is still owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association. And um, the mission was then um, around the issues that the Unitarians were very deeply involved in, including emancipation, of course, and women's suffrage. Um, and um, and and we're still interested in women's rights and civil rights and environmental protection and all of the issues um, that threaten um, our our world of justice um, we are sorry this is falling off yet again um, but we're very much more focused um, in the last decade and, particularly, frankly, since the election,
1: mm-hmm.
3: on the, the rights that we think we might be losing in America and even globally, but um, very focused on immigration rights, for example, on, um, on the, the role and, um, and place of intersectionality in our culture, um, and, um, and all of these things, Including freedom of the press that seem to be under threat um, more than ever.
1: Do you have a title that really embodies that mission?
3: Well, we have a series called Revisioning American History, Mm -hmm. which is one of our most successful and um, one of the most successful books we've published. One of our best selling books of the last few years is actually an indigenous people's history of the U.S., and it just retells the story of American history from the perspective of the indigenous yeah. people. And it's a startling, very bloody, startling book.
1: Yeah. So we'll just work our way down for this first yeah. question. So, no, Mission. Uh, yeah, I think more
2: focused also describes the uh, evolution of, of Europe editions over the past year or so as well. Um, we, we were founded um, much more recently, in 2004. Um, <laughs> And uh, the founders of the company uh, created Europa editions as a response to what they felt was happening in sort of a post 9/11 world um, and specifically the, the the sense that there was a great sort of Communication breakdown between you, you. I'm sure you remember the, the French fries becoming mm. freedom fries mm-hmm. and the French champagne being poured out, and, and Congress and things like that. Um, and the fact that it, it, it all of a sudden became very difficult for um, nations, countries, people, most importantly, to um, communicate effectively. Uh, and as publishers, that was what they knew, what we knew. Um, we started asking ourselves what can we do to address that uh, communication breakdown. And the response was, I I should have mentioned that the the founders of the the company are an Italian couple uh, and they have a publishing house in Italy that they've been running for 35 years. Um, So their their response to uh, this feeling that it was very difficult for people to communicate was to create uh, an American publishing house that would specialize in works coming from abroad, from authors coming from abroad. Um, And the the kind of books that we have focused on, um, this might be a little bit more information than you need at this point, but uh, you know they're they're books that connect readerships uh, as well as connecting a a writer with a readership, with an American readership. They're also books that have been popular, Mm -hmm. they've been read. They're quality fiction but they're books that have been popular in their native market. So the idea was that with that kind of editorial program we were also um, making it possible for communities, people, communities of readers to have uh, a point of contact. Um, That point of contact being the books that we were publishing. That mission um, hasn't changed over the years but I I think it's become increasingly um, focused over the past year and and we've concentrated a a lot on the sort of the the kind of message, the kind of fiction that we're we're bringing into this market in in the hope not only of communicating a different perspective on what's happening in the world but also perhaps um, giving American readers are a bit of a break as well and, and, and a window on something different. Yeah.
1: And, and so same follow-up and to you, a title that particularly mm. embodies that?
2: I, I think with, within this mission, um, it's, it's sort of an easy answer, but the, the more successful titles, the titles that have been read by more people in a certain sense embody that mission best of all. Um, the Eleanor Ferrante books um, have been read by almost three million readers in America. They've also been read in fifty other countries. In twenty of those countries, they've been bestsellers. I hear people now who travel to Vietnam, who travel to Germany, who are in Poland, and they see an Elena Ferrante book, or somebody reading an Elena Ferrante book, and they strike up a conversation with those uh, with those people, And, and and you know that that. Uh, I get a shiver even telling that yeah. story, <laughs> yeah, because it's you know, um, it's what we, we we set out to do, and, um, um, and and in this case with with these books, it, it's worked out.
1: Yeah. So well, that
4: Taj uh, um, yeah. has a little bit of a different story. Um, we started in the Plow and Stars Bar. In 1971, um, a group of uh, very enthusiastic um, and and bright young writers felt that the Boston literary uh, culture was very stodgy and they wanted to do something that would shake it up a little bit. So they started this journal together and of course immediately began to have arguments about what it would be about, how it would be, what its mission was. And so they did something very interesting um, where they assigned a guest editor to each issue so that uh, the readers would decide what was important. And uh, so we still do that to this day. We have two of our three issues are guest edited. And um, the guest editors bring half of the journal to us. They solicit from among their friends and colleagues and bring us half of um, the issue, and then they have to choose the remaining half from submissions that come through our submission portal. Um, so we get about 10,000 submissions uh, a, a year in a six month period from all over the English speaking world. And um, so it's it's a difficult magazine to get into, partly because of these, this cramped space to get in. Um, But I would say that our mission is the same, that we still want to find those fresh new voices and they're not going to be the same as they were in 1971. Um, And if they were, we wouldn't be doing our job. And so a lot of it is trying to uh, stay open to what writers are innovating because the truth is that we can never anticipate what writers are going to do. We think we know what we want. Uh, We think we know what we like and then a writer totally surprises us and does something that we could not have ever imagined loving. And so for me, that's a lot of, of the work that I do is being open to falling in love <laughs> with things that I hadn't heard about and, and couldn't imagine. And I think about the work that we do in literary journals and of course there are many, we're one of many around the country that we're doing a kind of, um, I'll use a scientific term although what we do is not scientific, um, uh, that we're a laboratory for new writing and one of the things that we have talked about is uh this little saying that we have that we are about finding tomorrow's classics today Uh so we are
1: we know that uh we hope that other
4: people will discover these writers with time
1: and uh i love the idea of 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 having yourself be open to falling in love with something new is there is there a piece that recent piece you think that really embodies that oh wow In a lot of ways, they all,
4: (laughs) that's the story of of my acquisitions. Um, Well, and and when I say I fall in love, it doesn't mean that that I always am at ease. You know, there are lots of of stories that I think about a lot, and, and often I'll think, oh, I don't really like that story, but... I'm gonna just sit on it a little while and then then it'll. I'll think about it. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about it or I'll be thinking about it the next day and I'll think I, I have to go back and look at that again. So love is maybe not a good term, <laughs> but um, just something that gets under my skin uh-huh. that, that I, I can't forget.
1: So this is very interesting because each one of your um, groups has a very well-defined mission, mm-hmm. um, but... And then there's your role as editors, with within within the organization. But what would you say um, overall is the role of an editor? You know, in or how do you see? I don't want to actually make it generic. It, when you when you think of you your role, Helen, for example, as editor uh, in the world today, how would you define it? What it is that you do, uh, and and why you do it? Um,
3: I think especially in this space, I think that editors are curators, that they look at a lot of material and decide some of it is art and some of it is not. And it is somewhat subjective, but but we are, like the curators in an art museum, we're people who have long experience and lots of training, and we've read a lot, and particularly Um, in subject areas, so we're better able to judge whether a piece of writing is going to stand up, whether a piece of writing is going to move people or really engage them or really teach them something. And so I see my role as picking Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes as actually commissioning. And we do quite a bit of that. We go out and ask a writer to write a particular thing, um, particularly when we see a hole, a need. There's no one, you know, we, somebody needs to write a really smart book about fracking within the, the whole story of um, the environmental crisis in America. So we find just the right people to write that book.
1: So that's a piece of being a curator in that way. So curation does that ring true partially?
2: I, yeah, I, I think it does to a certain extent. I I, I would perhaps um, counter that it's in, entirely subjective. I think that we're um, you know very much engaged in a, in a as a publisher engaged in a, in a conversation with um, with a readership or with the market, if you will, um, and it's our conversation yeah um it's not the be all and end all of all conversations it's ours um i'm i'm very attached to the idea of a publishing house um having an identity having a personality having a particular discourse that they're having that that, that house is having um yeah, as you you know you may know and and surely you do in Uh, Many countries in Europe, in the bookstore, uh, books are organized by publisher. Um, Because if if you understand the personality of that publishing house, then you may be looking for this, you may be looking for that. Uh, You want to engage in that conversation. Um, So, you know, that's how I feel. as, uh, as an editor, I think the, the, the job of an editor is multifaceted. There are various different ways of talking about what, a, what an editor is and what an editor does, um, but one of those things is yeah, figuring out what kind of book is right for that conversation that the house is having, that the personality of the, that fits with the personality of the house. We are all, um, you know, we, we don't work, fortunately you got out. We don't work for corporate houses anymore, you know? <laughs> uh, and I, I, we we have the luxury, if you will, I think, um, of of um, not having to publish books that we hate, but we know are going to sell. Yeah, um, we we I, I work for a for-profit publisher, and, and the health of my company depends on the book selling. Um, but I think falling in love with a with a book and then asking yourself is there a readership for this book that that's realism yeah that's being realistic about your job um, reading a book and saying this is terrible but it's going to sell a million copies that's you know that way lies damnation yeah that's
4: <laughs> I would agree, um, and from my past life as a book editor, definitely uh, this idea of books speaking to one another across mm-hmm. a list. Um, I started miniseries series when I was at University of Nebraska Press, and that was the beauty of the series, was that it was a kind of anthology, when all the books were on in a shelf together, that they spoke to one another, and um, it was very satisfying to work in that way. What I do now, um, is less maybe cohesive because it's it's really um in a sense out there trying to to catch what we can of the zeitgeist and uh to look at at how people are how writers are solving these problems about writing about our life in this moment and i think about a couple of instances where I would have a lot of submissions that, where someone was trying to talk about new technology in a story, and they drove me crazy. Mm. They were horrible. They, mm. were, they were boring. I didn't want to read an email. Um, and then I just had this past year two pieces that really understood how to write in fiction about the way our lives are changed by this technology, and not making a commentary on it overtly, but just really depicting it in a good, sophisticated way. So that, that was something where I knew, I've been looking for this and it's been hard to find and I, now I, I, this is what I wanted.
1: Okay, so this is really interesting because a, a couple of nuts and bolts questions, if I may. Um, how much of what you do as, as editors, for example, is you know, working intimately with, with your authors? And, and how often has that process, first of all, what's that process like? And how often has that process ended up with quite a different end product than, or, or end work than what was initially submitted to you? And, and I mean, please feel free, any, any one of you, just I've, jump I've got in. another
2: long-winded answer, I'm so <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, we, half of our list is work in translation. Right. Um, we, we're an unusual publishing house as well because we have this connection with Europe um, and all of the work that we publish in translation we have read in the original language. So in-house we read in seven or eight different languages or if we haven't read it in its original language we've read the entire work in another language that we, we do read before it comes into English. So when, when we make a, um, a choice about publishing a work in translation we want that book that we have read in the original language the editing process on a translation involves um, working with the translator to make sure that the translator has got it right. Yeah, we're not doing at that stage developmental editing, we're not changing anything, we're not cutting any. On a couple, very few occasions, once or twice um, we've made some cuts or some changes where it would have just been incomprehensible to an American audience. But in most cases we feel that that whole conversation is a little bit one-sided there's a sort of you know colonialism question because everyone knows what Levi's are but if you don't know what sort of the American the, the Italian equivalent of Levi's well you should yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's part uh, of that conversation yeah it's part I of our conversation so that kind of editing on the translations is um, in a certain sense light um, and is very it's very fine-grained um, but there's not a lot of developmental editing the other kind of editing with um, American authors where we're getting quote unquote raw manuscripts then we're more involved in shaping the book. But I, I you know it's it's a bit banal to say and a bit of a truism, but I think a good a good editor is not going to change what a writer submitted initially. They're going to at most sort of get more out of the writer so the the writer realizes his or her ambitions for that work.
3: I think it's very different with creative writing, for example, when I'm working yeah. on memoirs or poetry. In poetry, I don't do a thing. Mm. I basically sometimes maybe suggest some reordering or a tiny little change here and there, but for the most part, I feel like the poetry needs to be left alone. Um, With memoir, um, yes, a little bit, maybe asking a few questions. Why did, you know, well, where did that come from or something? But with the Mm nonfiction, huge amount of editing. Huge. I mean one of the uh, most successful books I worked on was a book that came in. It was a lousy how-to book that my um, assistant turned down. (laughs) And I said, wait, but there's something interesting about the premise of this book. And if this could be an argument book, it would actually be really good. And it turned into a hugely successful book by basically throwing in the trash what the author had sent and mm. saying you need to write a book that makes an argument mm. about this and then you need to back up the argument and um, and give us stories and examples. And and which it, mm. it, it which book was this? It was a book called Overdiagnosed non-fiction book about how the public mm. health system in America just pushes people into illness yeah. and, um, and it Became very popular, and it, it's a very good and very interesting book. But it wasn't in the beginning, so. Um... And I think
2: you're. you're you know, I remember when I think you pitched that at one of the oh, client, yeah. client summit yeah. things, yeah. and you're, you're right. Conceptually, it was so compelling. Yeah, yeah. so. It's always frustrating to get a great idea, a great concept that hasn't been realized properly. You're like, no, I wish it were a different book.
3: Right, but but with that kind of book, if you wish it were a different book, you can can actually say to the author, what you've done is no good, but your ideas are good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's start
4: over and Mm -hmm. figure out a way to, to deliver them well. Well,
1: Do you have that same sort of opportunity with Plowshares pieces? Well,
4: I, I would have that opportunity, yeah. but I find that if something needs that much work, um, I'm not inclined to take the, the story because I feel like it's there's something right behind it that's ready. Mm. That it needs another revision or um, maybe another editor who either will take that time or uh, feels it's finished. Uh, because as you say, this is highly subjective. But I I was thinking about, my again, my life as a book editor um, and you asked about a book that really changed in a big way. And um, I I never would uh, talk to a writer about making changes to their work unless I was interested in it. That always felt very wrong to to kind of open that karmic relationship and then not be interested. So, um, but one time I I did get a manuscript that I, I knew there was promise there But I I couldn't do the work needed. It was a huge developmental editing project, and it was a memoir, and I just couldn't dig in like that. So I wrote back to the writer, and I said, uh, you need to cut this in half, and you need to find your focus. And, you know, that's very vague, but, you know, it was a problem that I felt like only this writer can solve this. Um, But if you do that, send it back to me. And, you know, of course I didn't think she was going to do that. I just that was a big assignment and, and very abstract and do you know a year later she sent it back to me and she'd found her focus and mm. she'd cut it in half a knife, I did publish it. So sometimes writers will really surprise you and dig deep and, and find you know that that courage to go back to a, a messy project and do actually it.
2: Actually authors very often they, do. they know that there's they something know. wrong and they and they know that it's gonna be hard work to mm. fix and that's your job as an editor to sort of go hey
4: yeah. So I couldn't you <laughs> can't fix here. it for yeah. a creative right. project. You really cannot get in there and start doing that kind of work because right. you have to help them find what their passion is. Mm-hmm. They they are the, the writer has to solve those problems. Really.
3: Yeah. That is true. Although I will say that during a very brief period of time which was actually 10 years, um, I did <laughs> I did do some fiction. I did um, 10 works of fiction at Beacon, which we then abandoned Mm. because um, we didn't feel that we were adding enough to fiction. But um, there were a couple of works of fiction that I worked on that um, I remember one was a collection of stories, and when it arrived, um, I literally laid out each of the stories Mm -hmm. on the floor of my office. And I thought, I think I can shuffle these in a way that they will actually... Talk to each other better, mm-hmm. and they will. And, and what was so rewarding about that was when I sent it back to the author with some suggestions about bridges, she immediately said, "I can't believe I hadn't seen that. Mm-hmm. You know, now yes, of course, I I, I see it completely now. Right. But and that that was very gratifying because I felt like I just helped her." To see the connection between her own stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, are you all, all three of you, the ultimate arbiters of like if you, if you, if there's someone or a work that you like, and you say, "I'm going to work with this person," then, then it it, it becomes a, a piece either in plowshares or it becomes a book under your various imprints. There's, there's no one between you and it depends what the finished product.
2: In my case, it depends what the asking price. Is. <laughs> <laughs> well, over a certain. Uh, ceiling, I mean, tell us about that because yeah. there I
1: mean, even. There is there is an economic and business side to what all of you are doing, um, and the and the survival and the the health um, of each of your organizations is is imperative. Yeah. So I mean, how, how does how does that part of it work?
2: I, I I just as you were sort of talking, then I I, I realized that in um, that sort of. Uh, getting it pushed through process happens in both directions yeah. in my case because if, if there's a, a very promising book and um, perhaps the agent who sent it to me uh, knows that it's very promising and there are other editors and other publishers uh, interested in the book and we know that the price tag is going to be higher than what we would typically um, pay then I, it's the, the principal owners that I you know I need to yeah. get there um, get them to sign off on that. Um, at the same time, I think with every book, book project, um, it's, it's very important that you convince everybody in the house as mm. well. And perhaps yes. even more important than the owners, mm. yeah, because it, 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 it takes, um, you know, we're all dressed up, we all look relaxed, and all that. It's a hard job, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's really hard, and it's getting harder to, to find readerships for books. Um, and you really need everybody uh, in the publishing house involved in a project with all of their heart and soul. Um, and that, that can be difficult to do because they have their tastes and um, you know their their reasons why one project is more difficult than another. Or,
3: yeah. I agree. I mean that yes, I could I could just say we're going to do this and not that, but I never do that because hmm. of what you just pointed out. It it takes a village, and you know I need I need buy-in for the books I want to buy, and I need for. The other editors, we have seven editors, so we need them all to have that opportunity to bring up something they're passionate about, and um, and maybe I'm not, but if they are, and enough people on staff are, mm-hmm. then
4: we mm-hmm. um, we might very well go ahead with it. Yeah. So. I totally agree. Um, at Ploughshares, again, it's it's a different kind of economy because. We, of course, could not exist as a standalone organization. We are our parent is uh, Emerson College, and they give us office space and pay our salaries and benefits, and they're very generous with us. Um, But we have doubled our um, budget in the last eight years. Um, We are now, and we do pay, and we've actually almost doubled our, our payment to writers. Again, it's a modest. but you know almost $500 for a work of fiction which is a big deal for um, a a literary magazine so we pay writers about $30,000 a year which is a lot out of our budget Um, but that's a commitment that we make to um, to writers so um, we're not having to sell issues we sell subscriptions and yeah. so what we hope for are people who are loyal readers and that's always very difficult, you know, as a very small dedicated group of people who subscribe for 10 years or, you know, have, have subscribed for a long time and so do they love everything? Probably not but they love the, the mission of the journal and they're committed to that mission so um, it's a different kind of thing.
2: That's so awesome. I, I, but, I mean, I it, 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 it It's a sign of good health, that they don't love everything, right? Yes. If they did, it wouldn't last very long. Exactly. It would get mundane. I, I think it's good when <laughs> It wouldn't when surprise debate. them, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Just briefly, because I also want to get to, I have a bunch of questions about sort of the particularities of um, you know the culture we find ourselves in, in in 2017. But before that, I just wanted to ask you all, um, Did you? could you think of one that you wished hadn't gotten away? Oh sure. <laughs> sure, too many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matthew. The Desmond.
2: battlefield is Matthew living. Desmond. Yeah. Matthew Desmond.
1: Oh. I would have so, does everyone know Matthew evicted, Desmond? Evicted. Yeah. Um, he won the MacArthur Grant. It's a yeah. Book. Yeah. Mm. Wrote about the eviction crisis yeah. um, in Milwaukee, right? And he's at Harvard now. Yeah. Fantastic book. <sighs> Amazing. Book. <Okay. laughs> Yeah, I, I, can feel the, the, I feel why I, you lament that fame. one.
2: <laughs> there are really any number and I, I, I think, um, you know, there are publishing houses with which we share a certain affinity and, um, you know, if an author doesn't pop up on our list then they'll pop up on New Directions or other press or, uh, um, you know, also I think some of the good imprints of Riverhead and Knopf with much deeper pockets than us are also vying for similar projects. Um, there's a, a German author um, oh, there's two. Can I mention two, sure. two particular? <laughs> because I just thought of it under There's a French author um, by the name name of Enard, Matthew um and his book Compass just came out. Well, last year came out with New Directions, and it's a fantastic book. And it, um, I just think that uh, n- narratively speaking, and um, the, the the sort of emotional heft and the, the the, the philosophy and ideas and heart behind it, is, well, I would have loved to to publish that book and another author whom I, I, I really think is terrific is a German author by the name of uh, Jenny Erpenbeck, um, is also published by New Directions um, and uh, she's another author that I, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we were interested in and we didn't get in, in time.
4: Has that ever happened at Plowshares? Uh, not at Plough. well, we do, le- we lose projects, sure. We mm. lose, I, I mean, I had a piece by Lauren Groff and we have published Lauren Groff, but I had a story by her that I loved. It was probably seven years ago. And it had to go to the guest editor and during that long wait, uh, it was taken by someone else. So, you know, I hate losing that kind of thing, but the book, books happen too. Mm. And often it is a matter of money because I was working at a press that couldn't pay big advances really didn't pay advances to speak of and in a couple of cases I had friends who were talented writers whose agents were not working as hard maybe as they thought they should be and they wanted to send their work to me and I would say you know what's gonna happen I'm gonna love this and I'm gonna make an offer on it and then it's gonna be the dog in the manger and that's gonna and they said they don't they don't admit that's what they're doing but you know so I lost some of those kinds of Mm. books but Maybe helping a, someone that I liked too, who needed to have that book published. So, and then you know, you do lose you lose books because you couldn't. We couldn't even pay five thousand dollars. You know, so very modest advances um, comparatively. Yeah. So,
1: so this is a. I mean what time is not interesting to be in this world but but um i feel like there there are a lot of aspects of um how we live today which m- most certainly have an impact on your work i mean technology first first and foremost i mean how has it shaped changed uh disrupted publishing
3: one of the first things that comes to my mind is that when I was at Ferristras and Giroux, um, that Bob Giroux walked out of his office one day and said, "Ah, oh, just got a new manuscript from Walker Percy. Guess we'll put that on the next list. And it was a, f- you know, physical manuscript. That doesn't happen.
1: Yeah.
3: It just doesn't happen. You know, the world is so different. Um, I remember when we got, I'm making myself so old, but when we got a Telefax machine, it was so important because Roger could send faxes to, you know, Montadori, or, you know, it was, like, amazing. Um, But the main thing that's happened is everything's gotten much, much faster. Uh Publishing used to be very slow, and it needs to be even faster than it is now. In truth, I'm always pushing for shorter schedules. It cannot take seven months to make a book. We got to get much faster than that. Mm. It's too slow. But everything has moved very a lot faster, and part of that is, you know, we can we go straight to pages. We used to have different stages of galley proof and, you know, blues, and all of that has gone away, and we just go from pages right to printing it goes really much faster and it can go even faster which i think is a good thing and then we've got the ebooks which are great and audiobooks now mm-hmm. which i'm a huge fan of so um so the industry has gotten faster a little more nimble than it used to be um and more exciting yeah. a lot more exciting mm-hmm. so so i think even though sometimes I rue those old days, I, for the most part, I think it's just made it more um, relevant, book publishing much more relevant than it used to be, mm-hmm. um, more timely and a lot more fun.
2: Yeah, yeah um, the, when I first started in book publishing, I was working for the um, parent company of the company that I work for now in, in Italy and, and there was sort of a, a legendary um, uh, head of the production department who in the first weeks that I was there were, told me uh, stories of when he entered the business um, the proofreaders at the time would read the entire novels backwards yeah one word at a time to check spelling yeah um, to make sure nothing would slip by um, and obviously with spellcheck that has gone by the way I think sometimes the proofreading has gone by the way but um, yes, every, everything seems a lot more faster and it seems more necessary to be up, up to date, that, that, mm-hmm. that's certainly true. In, in our case, I think um, probably our company would not be possible without the advances in technology because I, I still work on a daily basis with my colleagues in Rome. We have only half of the office in New York, mm-hmm. yeah, the other half is in Rome. Um, our production manager, designer, um, the owners are, are in Rome. So um, that kind of uh, connectivity between colleagues and and between you know counterparts in other countries, I think, has uh, changed the industry a lot. We hear about things a lot faster than we we, we used to,
4: and you have to um, decide a lot, faster. and you have to
2: decide a lot faster. <laughs> a lot. Uh, and and I I think also you know with this. Especially the kind of publishing that, that Beacon does, um, the the, um, the the possibilities for um, in, increasing the velocity of, of, of production and so forth must be thrilling, yeah. Because you, you, you can be more up to date, more current. Um, I also hope that there will remain space for careful and slow contemplation um, going forward, because that has its fruits.
1: Yeah. Can, do you mind if I modify the question for you just no, a, a little no. bit and, and then would like to hear what uh, what uh, the two of you also have to think about that. But uh, so so there's sort of the how technology has changed publishing. But I'm wondering also how has it changed your ability to find new voices, new writers?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'll, I'll modify it a bit more sure. too. Because the, the, the question of finding is really about marketing in a certain way and raising a profile. And so we've really used technology uh, for that uh, in our marketing. We have a very active blog um, which allows us to uh, publish a lot more writers. Um, We have uh, robust uh, social media uh, campaigns and um, we also have a series called The Solos that we think of as a multiplier of what we were doing. Uh, initially we were doing it as, as just digital born, we have just thought about these as long stories, long essays and novellas that would be digital born. And then we ended up deciding to gather them into a print omnibus and after five years we've now decided to make, instead of having them set apart in an omnibus, they will be a fourth issue of the journal, they'll just be the Plowshare Solos journal mm. issue. But they'll still come out um, sequentially, um, nine of them each year, uh, with their own little digital campaign, marketing campaign and their cover, and um, there'll be audiobooks And so, you know, that that kind of thing is really great for us. And um, so as far as attracting writers, it's really the same process mm-hmm. because a lot of our readers are writers. And so um, if they know about the magazine, if they're familiar with what we do, they're more likely to send us their work. Yeah.
1: Has, uh, I mean, has, has social media changed the, or enhanced your ability to find, sorry about that, to find new writers? I don't know. For us, it <laughs> has. Very For
3: us, good. it has yeah. tremendously. Yeah. I mean, follow people on Twitter. Yeah. And, you know, and we find, yeah. we're always talking about how we commission books. Um, it's because we found there's a subject that we, really feel there should be a book about and then we can now find who's writing about this yeah. mm-hmm. and who's already got you know some deep background in it and you know who's got a great voice and you know I've I found people like that all of our editors have found good writers starting with social media and kind mm-hmm. of expanding and then of course we want you know they because somebody can do a great Twitter campaign or even a great short piece, doesn't mean they can write a book. Most of them cannot write a book. But we can dig deeper and ask the writer to show us what she can do, you know, by writing an in-depth proposal. And sometimes that's how we find people who write really good books that dig so deep into a subject yeah. that um, mm. that it becomes like an, an invaluable.
1: So speaking of technology, forgive me because I <laughs> want to actually look something up for this next question. Um, so I mean, the, so there's the, there's the techn- technological changes um, that. Touch the industry. There's also there's so many questions I could ask around in culture, but there's one in particular that I was thinking of because um, a while ago, earlier this year, I heard a couple of stories on NPR um, about about something that I didn't know existed in the publishing world. Um, they're called sensitivity readers, and um, these are readers who whose job like manuscripts are sent to them, and and they they read the manuscripts in order to. Um, understand or suggest whether or not there's anything in the manuscript that might be offensive to members of various cultures, um, <coughs> racial groups, etc. cetera, um, whether or not the authors inadvertently caused offense. And a lot of people seem to find great benefit from having these sensitivity readers. NPR quoted uh, one, one woman, Danielle Clayton, she's a sensitivity reader, and she gave an example of how, it seems like there's a lot of this in YA, um, but she gave an example of how she read a, a YA fantasy novel, and there were um, uh, characters, young people of color, in the characters, and and they were relegated to a secondary plot line about slavery. Mm-hmm. And this sensitive re- reader said, um, she questioned why um, the institution of slavery had to follow the black, black and brown characters in this in this book, and suggested to the author that the author make some changes. Um, uh, on the other hand, there has been some there's a recent case which we can talk about, but I was interested to see that Lionel Shriver has spoken out um, Mm. quite passionately against sensitivity, Mm. things like sensitivity sensitivity readers, saying um, she told NPR, she says, um, we should be free to borrow from each other's cultures, we should be advocating an ever more diverse population of characters, Um, and this super sensitivity, she says, that's developing is discouraging writers from doing that. And she calls it it could naturally lead to a kind of fictional apartheid. So um,
2: mincing words.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just <laughs> wonder, organization, I anyway. wonder what you think about that because you I mean, you've said like there's always this question of finding audiences for books. Now there's also this question of not wanting to offend audiences. Mm. I don't know. I mean, what's your take on that as mm. as publishers and editors?
2: I I, I mean uh, there, there is certainly It's certainly a question that, that needs to be unpacked and, and, and sensitivity. I'm not, not even sure there's such a thing as super sensitivity or hypersensitivity. There just is sensitivity <laughs> and they can be uh, sensibilities and, and one sensitivity can be offended or, or not. Um, there, I, I have, a, I think, a, a slightly cynical take on this. I, I, I do think that this is a, a market-driven question. I think it's no accident that um, this is coming up um, more frequently in the YA market which is a a booming market and there's a lot of money in it and there's a lot of um, production line quality writing happening for that market and I think in that case um, publishers who are trying to churn out books and a sensitive sensitivity reader a sensitivity editor is probably a very good thing because Who knows what kinds of nonsense is slipping through. We're we're talking about curatorial publishers and um, you know we're absolutely not going to get it right every time but I think we, we in order to stay true to the missions of the publishing houses we have to have some faith in our own sensitivity, our own sensibilities. To say something is working or something is not, and then on up when when it doesn't. Yeah, when you've made a mistake and you've said, ah, oh, you know, I, sc- I screwed that up, and I should have caught that, and um, I would have better served my author if I had flagged that issue.
1: But I imagine for um, for you, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, especially when you're de- if for the translations that you're dealing with, I mean, part mm-hmm. of the point is to be. Is for it to be a little challenging, be a little difficult. Create not, not that even, conversation. Yeah, not yeah. even a little. or Sometimes or a, a lot. lot
2: yeah, yeah, sometimes a lot. And um, you, you you take those chances. And you you know, I, I think the most offensive thing is always poor taste. Yeah. So you try to do things that are tasteful um, and not gratuitous. Um, and if they're risque or if they're they're, they're dangerous, then you know that, that's okay. Books are also that, and we also need books to serve that, that, that role. And a lot of the books that we do, for example, have offended um, people in their native markets. You know, we publish a Syrian author, uh, Salwa al-Naimi, and, and she wrote a, a, a beautiful book about um, a woman's sexual awakening and in the process told this lush and wonderful story about uh, Islamic erotic literature. Who knew it existed? Well, the um, uh, p- people in, her, in Syria knew it existed and it was um, uh, censored immediately. Um, and I feel that, you know. That kind of thing is very important to publish, and it's important. You know, we're we're aware of our role also as publishers in the English language. The English language is accessible to a lot of in a lot of countries, so we're you know we're we're open to that. And it was, I think, for many people, that book certainly in in the part of the world that she was writing was it was it was a shocking Mm -hmm. book.
3: I, I like what, um, and I agree with yeah. all of that, of course. I like what Lionel Shriver said, though. I think, um, you know, apartheid may be a little extreme, but but the idea that we're censoring some writers from creating characters or from speaking in other people's voices is just abhorrent. Why would we? Why would we do that? Why wouldn't we welcome writers if they're If they're creating convincing characters, if the voices feel compelling and convincing to us, um, then they're valid.
1: But to whom though, right? Because I think the question is, there are readers out there who would think this is not compelling or convincing to me because you're writing about a a 13-year-old African-American girl and that person is not familiar to anybody I know. know. Mm -hmm. Right,
3: but but having just, for example, read a very popular book, um, by an African a young African American woman, um, *The Hate You Give*. Oh, yeah. um, it's she's writing not only in the voice of very young African American women. She's also writing in the voice of white people, and she's also writing in the voice of old, of older white and black men. So she's allowed to write in all those voices, even though those people may think, "Well, th- hey." you know, she can't speak in my voice, but she's a fiction writer and she's creating a world and that world is very multicultural. And so she's writing about a lot of different people. Yeah. And um, and I think she's allowed to do that. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the way to respond, if you read that book and, and let's say you're a 67 year old black man and you say, I reject that, that's not me, that's not my generation, that's not my voice, then your choice is to close the book and walk away from it. <laughs> you know, or if you're a critic, you can write about that. Right.
4: But, you and don't... That,
2: that, that, that our, our, our book's Evokes that kind of a reaction, I think, is a very good thing. Yes, yeah. yeah? um, I I'd agree. Be, yeah. What do you
4: think? I agree, and I, I like your term censorship. I mm. mean, if mm-hmm. we and you the the example of the, the book that was published in Syria, that is immediately censored by the government. We're very upset about that. You know, the government shouldn't do this. Well, you know, it's it, whatever the, the movement is that stops someone from actually publishing something. That's, that's a scary thing. Um, so we have a right not to read it. We have a right to write well and, and say we hated it and why. But I think to, to say someone cannot do something is always, it's, it's really anathema to the American sort of, uh, ethos. And, and it's something that I think all of us probably, and, and, and of course there are books that offend us, you know, that we think, oh, but I'm offended by a lot of things. Yeah. I'm, 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 I, I get disgusted by things, you know, but, but my disgust or my being offended should not be uh, a reason then for someone that they should not have written that.
2: Um, I think the, what, what was his name again? Yanis, right? The, the, what was the guy that, do you remember he's a, uh, he was, he's uh, a, a blogger for Breitbart or a Oh, Milo, you know, yeah, right. yeah so, his right. book was, so that's the opposite case, yes, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I, the only thing, um, for those of you not familiar with the case, though, I mean, he's just a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, this guy <laughs> has, um, his ideas are bunk. Um, but he was, he bounced around from a, a couple of publishers and then was signed up for a very big deal at Simon, Simon & Schuster. And Schuster. Um, and, and, and then Roxanne, a, Gay out. Roxanne Gay pulled out of uh, a lot of authors said, "Well, I won't publish at this publishing house if you do this book at Credit. and they cancelled the contract. The only thing, honestly, that I found um, distasteful about that was Simon and Schuster's defense of their mm-hmm. choice to mm-hmm. publish this book, which was it was free speech and it was about this, and there are readers out there, and we have to serve the market, and this that, and the other. That's not why you signed him up. You signed him up because you knew he was going to sell loads of copies. Yeah? Just be honest about it and do your, your thing. We know that Simon & Schuster is not a mission-driven publisher, that Simon & Schuster is a media conglomerate um, or part of a media conglomerate and they're going to publish for the bottom line. Yeah? Yeah. And Sometimes they'll be good books and sometimes they won't.
1: Well, I, I I just realized what the time was because I heard the little bell ring. But I really appreciate you providing this insight. And thank you so much for coming thank tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank thank you. you. <laughs>